Turn with me over to 2 Peter. We're going to continue our series in 2 Peter. <clears throat> and we're going to look at chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. The title of this, this sermon is Process and Patience. Process and Patience. Looking at verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. First of all, know this, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through, the world, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. Verse 7. But by his word the present heavens and earth are reserved being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some counsel on us, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Lord, help us as we study. Peter is, is writing many of the same things that he's already written. And he doesn't have a problem helping the people to remember what they ought to know. Memory is one of our best friends, yet we hardly employ it when it comes to spiritual maturity. We employ it usually after we have been reminded that God is good to us. We forget that he has been good to us when the trials come. When the trials come, it's like all the times that we have experienced his faithfulness, all those moments, those memories, they, they kind of drift to the recesses of our mind. And if we search long enough, we'll find them. But in the immediacy of the trial, we forget where they are. And it's as if they sprout wings and fly away because fear takes over and we forget how faithful God has been. Peter says, I'm trying to stir your minds up so that you remember what God has done and who he is. Because in the coming days, mockers will come and they will tell you things that aren't true. And if you forgot what has been told you, you'll remember what they said rather than what God has said. It's important. And he says, <clears throat> the things you ought to remember are those which have been spoken by the holy prophets of old, as well as the commandment of our Lord and Savior Jesus as spoken by your apostles or by your leaders. First of all, let's talk about what was, what was spoken of old. You need to read your Bible every day. You need to get in this word and you need to read it every day because there, there's one thing that's for certain. You cannot remember that which you didn't have to begin with. The Holy Spirit is beautiful. He is an amazing, amazing person. He's the presence of God. He's the, the Lord of the church. 
And one of his jobs is to bring to your remembrance that which Jesus has spoken. Yet, generally, he's not going to conjure up that which you do not know. So he's got to have some reserve from which to draw. So if you have not read your Bible and don't know what Jesus said, it's hard for the Holy Ghost to bring to your remembrance that which was not given to you to begin with because you didn't take it out of the Word. It's important that we read our Bible and, and know what the prophets have said and realize that what the prophets have said in the Old Testament, much of which has already come to pass. The Lord has done some stuff, and, and it, it proves once again that what God says, he does. He is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. That when he says something through his holy prophets, he pulls it off. Re irrespective of obstacle and opposition, he pulls it off. In fact, he will use all of the obstacles as leverage to pull it off. When mankind would think that can never happen, he does the impossible because nothing is impossible to him. Now, when you know that to be the case, when difficulty comes or people become those that now are tearing down the possibility of God beginning to do something in your own life through their doubt and unbelief, when all those, those foundation stones feel like they are crumbling, then it's important for you to say, no, I remember what was said. Amen. And I remember what he did based on what was said. And I know my God is faithful. And although my circumstances don't look like it right now, that doesn't matter. Because circumstances are subject to change. And I choose to employ my faith at this point in order that I might see God overcome my moment. And my heart will remain steadfast in faith and, and, and steadfastness in him, believing that he is bigger than whatever I see right now. Remember what the prophets have said. And then secondly, he says, remember the commandment of our Lord. Now, when, when the apostles talk about the commandment of our Lord, generally they're speaking about the one that Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. Now, when Jesus said new, he wasn't saying I'm adding an 11th to the 10. New means this in Greek, fresh. Same word, no distinction between the two. So you have to take it in context of what he's trying to say whenever you see the word new. And probably it would be best translated fresh there. What Jesus was saying, I believe, in John 13 was, let me hit the refresh button for you. Because God's already said this. I'm just going to say it to you in a different way. The most important commandment we know in the Old Testament was love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Reiterated in the New Testament in Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Ah, but the second is like it. What did he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. To which a teacher of the law responded and said in Luke 4, 15, who is my neighbor? We are always trying to get around stuff, aren't we? Minimalize the commandment so we only have to do a little bit. We don't want to stretch it to do more for God. We're trying to figure out, what, what, what can I do just to get by and be right? Stupid questions are asked of me every once in a while. Pastor, does the Bible say anything about smoking marijuana? And I just look at him. Say, uh, no, 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 no. Bible doesn't say anything about smoking marijuana. Not a word. Not a word. He said, so like, like it's okay? <laughs> now, there are so many things I could say to that. 
so many things, not the least of which, that it's illegal. But the way I usually respond is, well, gosh, you know, if God were to make commandments against every idea that man thought of to create new ways of sinning, I don't think you'd be able to hold your Bible. It'd be so big. My, my sense is that the reason we don't find a command against weed is that, well, maybe, maybe God just didn't think that, that we would get so bad off that we'd go and find a weed and, and then dry it out and then roll it in a piece of paper and light the paper on fire and inhale the smoke. Maybe he just didn't think it was going to get that bad. He said, surely. They won't get that depraved, will they? I've given them wonderful air to breathe. Why do that? Now that is the nice, sarcastic way of saying, don't do it. We are always trying to get around what we know to be right because we want to do what we want to do. So this teacher of the law, came and said, well, who is my neighbor? You want me to love my neighbor as myself? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. There was this man who was befell by, by robbers and was left for dead on the road. And a, uh, a, a, a wonderful Jewish person came by and saw him and thought he probably ought not touch it. And so he walked right on by. And then there was a Levite who came by. And he walked right on by. Now, there was a law that said if you come within so many paces, or maximally if you touch a dead body, then you are declared unclean ceremonially. And therefore, you have to go through some washings in a period of about a week where you can't do what you need to do. So this Levite passed right on by, realizing, gosh, I don't want to go through that. I have to be right with God. And then he said, then the Samaritan showed up. And he took the man up, bandaged his wounds, found a hotel in which he could stay, paid for his bill, cared for the man until he was better. Now, we, we've looked at Samaritans as being wonderful folks, primarily because Jesus gave the story. Indeed, the parable is called the Good Samaritan. But if you look at it through the eyes of the Jewish people, Samaritans were, were the people that you did not ever associate with. If you were dying of thirst in the desert, you weren't allowed to take a drink from a Samaritan's cup. If you were starving, they couldn't prepare you a meal on their plates. That's how bad the Jewish people thought of the Samaritans. They were wrong in their thinking, but that's what they thought. So Jesus, knowing that, chose what they hated the most to be the most virtuous in his story and parable. He said, basically, who's my neighbor? Jesus was saying, Anybody you can find, dude. Why in the world are you trying to minimize this? The world is hurting. Go find somebody and make them your neighbor. Again, people would rationalize and say, listen, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I ain't loving myself too much today. (laughs) So Jesus made it real clear. He said, I'm going to take this greatest commandment and I'm going to refresh it for you. 
He said in John 13, 33 through 36, love people just like I loved you. Love them like I loved you. Can you confuse that? Is that easy enough for you to get? Can you find a loophole in that? Can't minimize that one. Because Peter, I have endured with you so long. Remember that moment when you got that revelation about who I was? The son of almighty God. And all of a sudden, I realized how you got it. The father revealed that information to you. And sure enough, you wouldn't have got it had not the father revealed it. And you began to feel it spiritually on the inside to such a degree. Now, you had thought, man, I'm like Isaiah. I'm like Elijah, Jeremiah. God speaks to me like an I am. I'm amazing. I can hear from him. And I went, to be, went on talking about what is going to happen. I got to go to Jerusalem. They're going to beat me and flog me and kill me and reject me. And then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And you came to me after you had the revelation that I am the son of God, which makes me equal with God. And you came to me and rebuked me for saying that I'm going to Jerusalem and die. Now, at that point, Peter should have been fired. How are you going to rebuke God? And it's not like he didn't know. He just got the revelation. You're going to rebuke God and tell him he's wrong. May it never be, Lord. You're fired, bro. You're fired. But Jesus endured with him, corrected him, kept him on staff. So many times we see more flaws in Peter's ministry, in his discipleship and training than anybody else, and Jesus brought him most close and, in fact, made him the leader of the church. Love people like I loved you. Don't distance yourself from them when they hurt you. In fact, that is, that's your clue to get closer. Love people like I loved you. And if that wasn't enough, I died for you. Love people like I loved. Lay down your life for them. These things you need to remember. Stir up your mind by way of sincere reminder here. Make sure you don't forget these things because they are central to your progress and your steadfastness. He says, because mockers will come mocking. After your memory is jogged to do the right thing. Mockers will come mocking and they will say, well, he's not going to come. I know y'all talk about last days, but shoot, it's been 60 years. Been a long time since he, 500 years, 200 years, 2,000 years since he showed up. He ain't coming. And things are going to go on like they've always gone on. It's not going to happen. Just go on, live your life like you want to live it. He says, when you hear that, do not believe it. Because you are anchored in what the prophetic words have already done. And if he said he's coming, he's coming. And he, 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 Peter begins to, to refer to the, to the moments when other mockers began to mock the word of the Lord. He said, remember Noah? Yeah, the, the heavens were created out of water. The, the heavens and earth were created and out of water the earth was created. And by water the earth was flooded. And during that time period, there were mockers that were constantly coming up to Noah saying, what you doing, man? You're building a boat for what? Ain't nothing going to happen. No, there's rain coming. No, it's not. It's not happening. And they mocked that boy for 100 years as he built that boat. God says he's coming again. He's coming. And do not let the mocking stop you from your process of building. Building your personal life, building your family, building your church, building your community. It's important for us to build things on the planet into which people can run and find refuge from the world. 
Folks ought to be able to come into your family and find peace and safety. They ought to be able to come into the church and find peace and safety. They ought to be able to come into your life, your cubicle at work, and find peace and safety because you've got enough truth and you have enough hope in your God to be able to minister to them in their difficulty and give them hope that things can be better tomorrow than they are today. The word of the Lord is true. What he said he's going to do. He said he's coming back. It's going to work. Now listen. I'm excited about his coming. His bodily coming. But I am not every day waiting for him to show up in body. But I am waiting for him to show up in spirit every day of my life. I'm not just waiting around twiddling my thumbs. Acting like the Lord's coming in a hurry. Don't pay your bills no more. No reason to go to work. No reason to evangelize. Lord's coming tomorrow. I got every confidence that you're going to get up tomorrow and go to work. And you're going to do it next Monday. And the next Monday. That's not cynicism. That's just preparing as we should prepare. And not sitting back and waiting for something that no man knows the day or the hour. So we got to be responsible here. But I do know this. That he's coming every day to my life to check. He's coming every day to my life to empower. He's coming every day to my life to inspire. I want his coming in my prayer life. I want his coming in my preaching. I want his coming in my husbandry, in my fatherness. I want his coming every day. That's what I look for. Because I can't live right without him. And so I'm not dissuaded from the fact that even though he said these are the last days and there have been 2,000 years of last days. To think maybe he's not coming. I'm not dissuaded at all because I feel his presence every day. And whenever he wants to show up at that last moment, I'll be happy. I'll be all right with me. I'm not the one who's supposed to determine when that is. My job is to be faithful to him every day and fellowship in his presence as he sees fit to show up. But he is coming. Don't let the mockers begin to tell you it's not true. And he says... Not only did it happen that destruction came one time, he said, it's coming again. But the Lord said he's not going to do it by water, he's going to do it by fire. Now, some would interpret this as being figurative. And I'm not going to argue with him. But I think it's literal. Primarily because he refers to a literal moment when the world was destroyed by water. And he's saying, now the world is going to be destroyed in the days to come with fire. And there is a fire that's going to consume the planet and purify it and make it better. And it's a moment when the ungodly and those who have railed and reviled God are going to be judged for what they do. But simply because God spoke it in the first century and we haven't seen it yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. What it means is this. And this is where he gets to God is not slow about his promises. But he is patient, not wanting any to perish. God loves you. And, and the narrow-mindedness of Christians that says, I want him to come now. It reveals the selfishness in their theology. Amen. Because all they're thinking about is themselves. I want relief. I want rest from my labor. I'm tired of living in this world. Jesus, come back now and help me, please. And they're not thinking about all the folk that would perish if he did. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Some would consider it slowness, but not according to his calendar. Now, let me bring some perspective. Do you know that before you got saved, 
there were people out there saying, Jesus, come back today. Aren't you glad he didn't answer their, their prayer? Do, do you get my point? As much as we want relief, sometimes our desires for relief are selfish because we're not thinking about anybody else. Secondly, let's not make it just a, an event in time that's going to happen. Let's not look at it just like that. Let's look at it as an opportunity. Meaning, okay, if I'm not supposed to say, Jesus, come now because people need to get saved still and, and, and the Lord is not slow about his promise and he wants everybody to get saved. If, if I'm not supposed to, do, then, okay, I won't do that. And I'll just wait for folk to get saved. No, 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 no. Why don't we go out and help them get saved? This is where our responsibility kicks in. God is waiting for you while we're saying, please, do something, God. He's saying the same thing to you. Do something. We're waiting on him. He's waiting on us. Do something. There are so many people that need to hear this truth. And we are supposed to be the primary vehicles through which they hear it. Jesus is not using as a standard operating procedure his presence showing up in folks' house and say, please serve me. He's not doing that in bodily form. He's asking for you to show up in their house and play, say, please serve him. He's waiting for us to minister the gospel to people that don't have it. So I beg you, take up the mantle of the, of the Great Commission and do what you ought to do. Go and make disciples. If you don't feel trained, this is why we have evangelism seminars in our church to equip you and train you on how to take this gospel to your sphere of relationship. Well, he said there's a, there's a fire coming, and this fire is going to destroy stuff. But, but he doesn't get to what the end product is, that after the, he, he destroys stuff, there's, at least he doesn't get to it at this part. After he destroys stuff, he says there's going to be later a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this new heaven and new earth is going to be really special. Don't know what it's going to look like, but I do know this, that God from the beginning has been trying to get us back to the beginning. He set up a beautiful planet for Adam and Eve. Beautiful beyond description. A, a beautiful day like yesterday would have been a bad day for Adam and Eve. The most beautiful scenery you've ever been to would have paled in comparison to what they saw every day. The fruit we get in the grocery store is stuff they throw away. Eve and Adam had it perfect. Perfect. And they blew it. And God released them from their blessing and said, now carve out an existence outside of the place I intended. But ever since then, the Lord has been giving us images of how he's been trying to get us back there. So the people of Israel were on the planet. They were wandering in the wilderness. But what did God say? I'm trying to get you to one spot promised land. Why? Because this land here represents my unqualified blessing upon a people. And it's a place where you have to do as little work as possible and get the greatest yield. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. What did Jesus say when he came? He didn't say, I just come to bring a message. He said, if you listen to what I'm saying, the kingdom of heaven has come to you. It's at hand. I am coming to bring the order of the kingdom on earth. 
And ever since then, he has been trying to set up outposts of glory every place the church is, every place that the people of God are, outposts of glory, so that he can represent what it's like to live on the planet with his unqualified blessing. I'm convinced that he's trying to get all of us back to Eden. So when he talks about what a new heaven and a new earth would be after this thing is burned up, it's a place where we get to redwell. Now you say, well, wait a minute, I thought we were in heaven. Well, remember, when Adam and Eve were in Eden, what did God do every day with them? If you look there in, in, in Genesis 3, it says he came to walk with them in the cool of the day. Every day he did that. So even though there was a distinction between heaven and earth, there was no separation. Adam and Eve were in fellowship with God as closely as any of us could be with him in heaven. That's where he's trying to get because he made the planet for people dwellers, for, for, for folks who are made from earth, and that's what we're made from. He made the planet for us. So ultimately, my sense is that we get to take it back, but it's a brand new spot that looks a whole lot like Eden. And as a result, we get to fellowship with him in unbroken communion for all of eternity, enjoying his presence in a place that feels like where we came from without sacrificing the majesty and beauty of heaven. That's just an FYI. These are the promises we get to hold on to. He says, mockers will try to tell you it's not going to happen, but it'll happen. And so you've got to have the foundations of the prophets, and you have to have what Jesus Christ said with respect to the, 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 the fresh commandment. Now, with respect to the fresh commandment, he said it too, in the context of your leaders. Meaning, listen and, and remember this new commandment as spoken to you by your apostles. Can I say that it's important that you identify some person as your pastor, some leadership team as your pastors. That's important. Just as it is, is, it is important for you to identify a church as your church. But how you identify it is, is really key. It's critical. Because the American way to identify a church as your church is, is to say, that's where I go on Sunday morning. And as long as you go there on Sunday morning, when you go, that's your church. But the biblical way to identify with the church is to say, those are my people. You see how that sounds different? That's just not the place I go. Those are my people. Those are the folks to whom I'm committed. I serve in their mission. I love their vision. I want to be known as part of them. And no longer do I call that their church. It's my church. I take ownership there because I love it so much. I care about it. That's the way we ought to be identified with a people group called the church. Similarly, we ought to identify with somebody or some people group in terms of a leadership as your pastors, your leaders, because there is some way that they are supposed to biblically communicate the truth to you in a way that you like best to hear it. Not that they somehow cater to your humanity to such a degree that they begin to compromise truth, but there's something about the way they present it that makes you feel like this is the way it ought to be said to me. 
Even if it's a corrective moment and God has to give you a rebuke for what you're doing. You feel like, okay, I need that. Sir, thank you. May I have another? Because I love truth more than I love my own reputation and, and, and my sense of well-being. I want to have truth in my life. You need a leadership group who communicates the command of our Lord in such a way that you identify with it. If you don't have that, then you are not receiving the entire element of the kingdom as you should. And he says, lastly, God has this version of millennial mercy where a thousand years as are a day, and a day is like a thousand years. First of all, God has the ability to play catch up. You may have come to the party a little late. You, you, you just got right with God. Or maybe you got right with God when you were 10, but you didn't follow him very well. And you wound up at the age of 40, really no further along in your spirituality than when you were at 10. And you realize, oh, I've wasted 30 years. Lord, I could have done so much. And, and now you're here, or you went someplace and then wound up here, and you, you're, you're, the lights came on. And you realize, God, I could have had a V8. God, I want to do so much for you now, but it's really late in the game. And there's so much I have to unlearn. And there's so much I don't know. And I don't know if I have enough time with the, the period I've got to left, left to, to live to really be able to be productive. Lord, I, I'm sorry. And you get despairing. You get discouraged. And hopelessness sets in. I want you to know, don't go there. God has the ability to play catch up unlike anybody else. Somehow or another, he can make the thousand-year period that you think going to take to fulfill your destiny come in a day. He can make that happen. And you know, here, he, he's given us a couple, couple of little pictures of, of the thing, the technology we, we use here in the earth. When you go into an airport and you've got to get a connecting flight someplace, you know, you get off a gate, out of a gate, and then you've got to go to another one. You go through the airport and you realize, boy, it's, it's, it's a quick connection. It's a 30-minute connection. And you, they close the gate in 15 minutes, and it's way on the other side. I mean, you've got to go through four terminals to get there. What does the airport provide you in order to get there quicker? Shuttles, walkways, things to help you get to your destination quicker. And the walkways are beautiful. You are walking at your own pace, yet you are getting someplace much quicker than if you had just walked at your own pace. The will of God allows you the privilege of walking at your own pace. You can't get there any faster on your own because this is how you walk with him. Yet when you get on the conveyor belt of his will, all of a sudden you move it like this. That's the way God does stuff. So even if you came to the party late, he will truncate that thousand years and it seems like that it's going to take you to fulfill your destiny and bring it down into a day. And why does he do that? Because he doesn't have many people who say yes. There are just so many folks out there that want to do their own will. He just doesn't have many to choose from. It's not that he thinks that it can't be done without you. He just realizes, you're all I got. That's all I got today. And so I got to use you. So I'm going to speed up the process of you fulfilling your destiny. You just say yes, make yourself available, and watch how I'll speed up your purpose. But those who have been in this a little while realize, gee, this is taking longer than I thought. (laughs) This is taking a whole lot longer than I thought. 30 years. Grateful to God for every day. Every day. But it, it took us 25 years to get a building. Now, 
there were pastors I know that got a building in two. Four. Longest I know was eight. Twenty-five. Really? <laughs> really, God, that was a good idea. That was your perfect will for us. Twenty-five. And it didn't come without searching. We bought property. I spent the better part of many years searching with realtors all around to try to find bare land, warehouses, schools that were abandoned. I can't tell you how much time I spent out there. Plans that were developed by architects and then scrapped. Oh, the time, the energy. I wasted doing all that, though I thought it was the most productive thing I could do because I needed to be responsible with our vision. 25 years, and that was God's good pleasure. And I don't, I don't know exactly why, but I do know this. I identify with Abraham in a real way. At the age of 75, God told him, you will have a baby. 75. He had to wait 25. He was 100 before he got it. 100. God, couldn't you have given it to me when I was like 80? Okay, I waited five years. That would have been great. 85? Really? A hundred? Twenty-five years? Why? Why did you make me wait so long? So you could be a testimony to everybody else who has to wait longer than they feel necessary. Amen. And I will fulfill my will in your life. My will. I'll make you live longer. I'll extend your days just to be faithful to my word. And this is, the, this is what sin does. It messes up everything. Whereby sometimes God has to bring convergence. God has to wait for other people to get in spots so that things can happen in a kind of synergistic way that could never have happened if you had just done it all by yourself. We don't know all the whys, but sometimes a day is like a thousand years. But we get testimony out of it that encourages others about what it means to wait patiently. And you, you do know what patience means, don't you? It means long-suffering. And, and it's really antithetical to the whole idea of patience to try to shorten long-suffering. I know that's a tough concept to get your minds around. But you're ruining the whole process to shorten long-suffering. And before you begin to complain about how long you have to suffer, remember, God has been patient, not wanting any to perish, that any includes you, includes me. He has suffered so long with humanity. Every day he suffers. He suffers with people who ignore him, with people who use them to fulfill their own will, who do things in the name of God that he would never stamp. He suffers with the selfishness of humanity. He suffers with people ignoring the sacrifice he gave and mercifully continues to outreach to those who hate him. He suffers. So before we complain too much, remember you're getting the, the distinct privilege of identifying with God in a way you probably never wanted to. But it's making you more like him because he has suffered with humanity. And before you think he needs to wind all this up, and stop all the suffering. Remember, somebody prayed that same prayer before you got saved. And fortunately, as we said before, God didn't answer it. He's waiting because he loves humanity. 
He's not waiting because he's neglectful. He's not waiting because he's absent. He's waiting because he loves humanity and he wants people to get saved. If you don't love him today, if you're not right with him, here's an opportunity for you to turn your life around and experience his loving kindness that has waited for you for so long. Amen. Let's pray. Daddy, we love you. We thank you.